Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitor is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. Some of the stories we look at this week include our tribute to D.C. Fontana, the FCPA trials that have occurred over the past few months, and the guilty verdicts the DOJ has been able to obtain, tweaks to the FCPA corporate enforcement policy, comments from Brian Minchkowski, the most idiotic FCPA article ever, Jay Reminiscis, we look at ethical downsides of AI and fintech, why you should have a person who listens if you want to have a speak-up culture, a framework to think about ESG, 10 things you should do to prepare for the new California Privacy Act, the massive anti-money laundering scandal down under, and a great five-part podcast series I had with Jay's colleague, Mikhail Gordon, on aspects of monitorship. We go over these in uh, some detail, and we have a lengthy session where we talk about script writing, Jay's experiences in Hollywood, and those of Trailblazer, D.C., Fontana, and of course, my love for Star Trek. I know you will enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. All this and more on episode 182 of This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist and the Voice of Compliance, back again with Jay Rose and Mr. Monitors for this week in FCPA, episode 182 for the week ending December 4th, 2019, the tribute to D.C. Fontana edition. Uh, We took last week off, Thanksgiving week off, and the the Texans beat the Patriots. And so they did for the first time this century. But, Jay, more importantly, we lost one of the greats from Star Trek, um, D.C. Dorothy Catherine Fontana. Uh, Hopefully we can chat about her a little bit uh, later in the episode. But we had a a heck of a week in FCPA compliance and ethics. So you want to jump into it? Yeah, it's the the end of the year. It's conference time. It's... uh, individual trial time. And uh, first, we're going to take a look at the heavily contested and much talked about Bustani uh, trial. We've got two sources we're going to look at. First, uh, we're going to look at something that Dick Casson wrote for the SCPA blog. And he said, uh, trending juries convict six FCPA defendants in rare trials. In some years, there may be one or many years, there may be none. This year, however, there were three trials ending in convictions of four defendants. The first trial this year was the federal jury trial in Boston, where they convicted two defendants for a scheme to bribe officials in Haiti. After a two-week trial in June, Roger Richie Bouncy, 74, a dual citizen between the U.S. and Haiti, was found guilty of conspiracy to violate the FCPA Travel Act 
The jury also convicted his co-defendant, Joseph Baptiste, 66, of Fulton, Maryland. In November, we just had a federal jury in Connecticut convict Lawrence Hoskins, 69, on six counts of violating the FCPA, three counts for money laundering and two counts for conspiracy. Uh, the trial lasted two weeks, but the jury only needed one day to convict. And also in November, a federal jury in Maryland convicted Mark Lambert, 56, of four counts of violating the FCPA charges. Uh, in 2018, there was one FCPA-related jury trial uh, of Patrick Ho, now 70, who was convicted of in federal court in Manhattan. He bribed African officials on behalf of the Chinese energy company. That brings us to the trial in Brooklyn that ended last week for Jean Bustani. They acquitted him December 2nd of charges arising from a scheme to pay Mozambican officials tens of millions of dollars in bribes for the government borrowing hundreds of millions of dollars to pay for ships it could not afford. Now we switch into some uh, analysis by Rick Messick from the Global Anti-Corruption blog, and he talks about uh, there was a a lengthy trial, but it took the uh, jury less than a day before Thanksgiving to uh, pass down a verdict of not guilty. Very quickly, Privenen, uh, Privenvest, the company that was responsible, decided to put a little Republican spin on this and say that they were uh, guilt-free on all charges. Unfortunately, what this proves is that the verdict of acquittal does not exonerate Privenvest, nor does anyone else for that matter. What it shows is two things. One, how hard it is for American prosecutors to pursue bribe payers clever enough to keep the United States at a distance. And number two, not all federal prosecutors are afraid to prosecute. At the end of the article, um, Rick brings in our favorite artist, uh, author of the Chicken Chick Club, Jesse Eisinger, and just talking about that, again, it is really hard to bring banks and to bring big people to justice. Messick's hope is that they might be able to use this information that came out in the trial and some of the other jurisdictions. So he uh, recommends that we look forward to seeing what Mozambique, the UK, the UAE, or France might be able to do. The Boston, the Bostani case will not be the last action to arise from this scheme. And with the evidence prosecutors presented in Brooklyn, it is unlikely others will be as lucky as Mr. Bustani was. We had some tweaks on the FCPA corporate enforcement policy uh, earlier, uh, I guess, late in November. Uh, we've got a couple of links to it. One is uh, our good friend Mike Volkoff over at uh, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. And then some lawyers from Davis Polk posted an uh, article on uh, New York University's Compliance and Enforcement blog. Uh, the changes are subtle. Uh, they're not great, uh, but they, I think, um, are uh, have some significance. The first one was that the um, DOJ policy now states a company must disclose all relevant facts known to it at the time of the disclosure, and they added a footnote recognizing that a company may not be in a position to know all relevant facts at the time of the disclosure. Uh, this uh, previously, um, uh, rather to further encourage employees, or excuse me, companies to self-disclose, they also said the policy now requires company to disclose facts as to any individuals who played a substantial part in the misconduct at issue and disclose all relevant facts regarding uh, anything that uh, might be a substantial violation on the law. So, um, uh, and finally, uh, 
companies need to self-disclose when they become aware of it, not when they should have become aware of it. So uh, slight changes, but I think um, kind of real-world changes. Mike details them. Uh, the lawyers from Davis Polk and their blog have a really handy um, a link to a uh, comparison of the prior policy and the current policy right, uh, written directly, or I should say edited directly in the policy. So that's uh, pretty helpful if uh, something you're interested in uh, going forward. Uh, Brian, uh, excuse me, Jay, it is um, the week after Thanksgiving, as we said, and that's the week of the ACI's National FCPA Conference. And we typically have speeches from uh, top-level regulators from both the SEC and the Department of Justice. Uh, yesterday, we had Brian Benchkowski speak. Um, what did Mr. Benchkowski have to tell us? Well, he had to tell us uh, once again that it was uh, a banner year for uh, DOJ and FCPA uh, prosecution. So far in 2019, the Criminal Division's FCPA unit publicly announced more charges against individual 34 than in any other year in its history. It has also publicly announced more guilty pleas by individuals 30 than before. The number of individual prosecutions in 2019 is not an outlier or statistical anomaly. Rather, it's part of the department's continued dedication to hold individual wrongdoers accountable. Uh, he also talked about uh, that there were seven FCPA matters that were concluded and two that were concluded by declination and disgorgement. And this year, fines from all FCPA matters were $1.6 billion versus the previous high in 2016 of $1.3 billion and a total of $2.8 billion recovered globally through coordinated resolutions. One of the chief matters that uh, led a billion dollars into recovery was the case of J-Lo that we have spoken about many times before. Uh, but he said the terms of this settlement are striking, especially when considered alongside the division's prior disposition of related forfeiture cases. And all the United States will have recovered or assisted in recovery more than a billion dollars in assets associated with one MDB. Next up, he wanted to take a look at some of the uh, changes that were made in the division. Uh, he recognized the changing of the guard that happened as former head of the FCPA unit. Daniel Kahn was promoted to senior deputy chief of the frauds section. Dan had moved up steadily within the FCPA unit, starting as a line trial attorney and then becoming assistant unit chief and finally being promoted to the head of the FCPA unit. The new head announced is Chris Sestaro. Next, we look at the rate things are going. Um, ben Sikowski quipped that the FCPA section of white-collar crime textbooks will be chock full of, of judicial opinions with which to challenge law students via the Socratic method. He briefly referred to the Hopston, Hopskin, Hoskins matter as well. Uh, the next section that we get into are taking a look at all the different references uh, that were made this year to ethics and compliance programs. Uh, we link to this in the show notes, but there are several uh, areas that he brought up uh, with addition to the 2019 uh, corporate compliance, uh, the, uh, the guidance rather, which was the updating of the Wei Chun's thing. And finally, uh, he took some uh, remarks on agency and this is, again, specifically uh, related to the uh, Hopkins matter. 
And his remarks regarded agency are tended to provide a window into the department's thinking and approach to cases. Although many aspects of prosecutors' works must be kept confidential, there is no need for there to be a black box around the principles and the policies of their decisions. So uh, it's um, really, I guess, a, a sweeping affirmation of something that DOJ has been doing for the last several years. And we've pointed it out that when possible, they want to bring transparency to all issues and incentivize the uh, companies that may have the option to report to DOJ, giving them all the tools and the information that they need to know about and the proper way that they can report. So uh, I I think on the whole, we pretty much will uh, agree that there is has been this push to transparency and uh, hopefully it will help practitioners going forward into the new year. So uh, if I can just add some thoughts that Matt Kelly uh, put in an article he posted today, Jay, that we've linked to in the show notes as well, uh, on Matt's site, Radical Compliance, he really used it as a starting point to discuss the dichotomy between the role of compliance and legal. Uh, obviously, Brian Benchkowski's comments were legal in nature. He's a lawyer at the Department of Justice. Um, and uh, Matt's point was that uh, a compliance officer can't worry about the niceties of who's an agent, who's not an agent. Have we created an agency relationship? Do we have a structure that prevents agency? A compliance officer has to uh, prevent, detect, and um, remediate. So um, uh, that no matter really what the Hoskins case says or doesn't say or stands for or doesn't stand for, that uh, compliance officers still have to have a robust uh, third-party uh risk management protocol in place. So um, uh, kind of an interesting take uh, from Matt on that. Um, Jay, we have something next, and I I really thought long and hard about putting this in, Um, but uh, it's been a long time since I've seen something like this in the FCPA commentariat. And this uh, article really rates up with one of the absolute worst FCPA articles ever written. Let me just start with a title. How can you certify 100% compliance based on new SEC slash DOJ requirements? So let's start with that title. Uh, there's no compliance program on earth that can certify 100% compliance, period, end of statement. Two, there are no new SEC DOJ requirements, period, none. And indeed, the article does not reference those at all. The article does go on to say that the SEC has now gotten involved with the SFC, uh, in FCPA enforcement. Memo, the SEC has always been involved with FCPA enforcement. They didn't just get involved in that. Uh, next up was this incredibly inane assertion that if you just send a certification to your third parties, if they haven't violated the FCPA, that's all you have to do. Really? No shit, Sherlock? That's the most stupid effing thing I have ever heard in FCPA compliance. This is just beyond belief. But the author goes on to list a helpful um, list of all of the elements your certification should have, that you should have your third party certify that we will never violate the law. We haven't violated the law, and we're not going to violate the law. Um, 
We've linked to it in the show notes. Uh, so if you'd like to, a good laugh uh, before your morning constitutional, this is definitely the article for you. Um, it's just, I could not believe it. It even got picked up on the Google daily FCPA feed. Um, so we rarely see this, uh, something this inane. Um, the question I would pose, not to you, Jay, because I know you know the answer to this, but to the author. Can you spell FCPA? <laughs> uh, all right. Well, to something hopefully a little bit less in name. Uh, this week I started a, a series of blog posts that I'm going to have on Corporate Compliance Insights. And I'm taking a look. Uh, all year long, we've been talking about the fact that um, Affiliated Monitors is celebrating its 15th year in business. And uh, 15 years ago, the concept of independent monitoring was just getting off the ground. And this week, I decided to take a look at the importance of that development and affiliated monitors' role in that change. And, um, you know, I wanted to reminisce about Vin Siani, the president and founder of Affiliated Monitors. And this 15-year sweep that we're going to look at over five uh, blog posts is much more than simply the history of AMI. It actually details the rise of independent monitoring in the U.S., at multiple levels, the federal government, state agencies, and local authorities. AMI has been at the forefront not only of the use of independent monitors, but also the dramatic growth of the compliance and ethics profession over the last 15 years. Vin DeSiani began formulating this idea of an independent monitor when he observed a series of sanctions rendered by government agencies in which he believed the underlying behavior did not fit the crime. It just seemed wrong to Vin, but there were no other options that were out there. And for seven or eight years, this idea just percolated in his head about doing something to create an alternative to sanctions, if you will, on a probationary side of things so that a doctor or practitioner could get better. The reality is that license revocation or suspension from relatively minor regulatory infractions does not do any good for the parties involved. From this point, DeSiani was able to convince some state regulators in Massachusetts to try a new approach. Some of them were regulators, some were attorneys who represented clients, some worked in the state attorney's office. With this idea coming to fruition, the next step was for Vin to create a business organization to fill this niche. Previously, a state regulatory board might appoint one of its own to become the monitor. In reality, they were simply the eyes and ears of the board. Conversely, if the monitor is the best friend of the recalcitrant party, then there is a clear bias and lack of that objectivity. AMI was able to establish this process to designate the company as a true neutral. All of these concepts had to be explained literally again and again to regulators. DeCiani said, it's talking to them, explaining to them what you do, telling them the benefits of what they're getting, and then showing them some of the examples of how monitors work. He spent a lot of time building the groundswell of support for a concept of the independent monitor. And next week, as part of the series, we'll take a look and explore some of the clients and some of the things that happened in AMI's early days of independent monitoring. So, Jay, next up, we had an article from Kristen Broden over at the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal, where she took a look at the issue of AI with compliance practitioners and risk managers. Now, this was in financial services, which is, I think, uh, more mature and more developed in using AI than commercial organizations. But it really points up 
not only the uh, difficulties of financial service providers in this area, but I think what we're going to see in commercial organizations that we typically work uh, more with and through. Um, while AI has been used to make trading decisions for years, uh, many of these companies are now beginning to use it for other areas such as consumer lending, transaction monitoring. And this has created a challenge for risk managers, requiring them to understand how algorithms work and identifying potential pitfalls when technology is applied. That's typically not something that lawyers are very good at because we're not trained to do that. Um, so I think uh, as AI moves into commercial organizations, uh, there are going to be more of these questions. And I think that commercial organizations can perhaps look to the financial industry, to banks, financial services industry for uh, uh uh, thought leadership on how to uh, overcome these. So uh, I thought it was really interesting, and I think it portends what we may be seeing in, in our space uh, not too far down the road, Jay. So uh, next up, we have an article that comes to us from Navix Global's Ethics and Compliance Matter blog. Uh, every Friday, they go back and, and find some um, scholarship or some of the thought leadership that they've been known for producing. Uh, this is an article that comes to us from Bob Conlin, former CEO or current CEO of the company, and it's called Don't Encourage Employees to Speak Up If You're Not Ready to Listen. And we all in our in this space talk about having a speak up culture and a strong, positive organizational culture is a result of ongoing dialogue, not a monologue. For an employee to feel invested, they must feel invested in. And this made Bob think about most importantly, how do you implement popular practices in the space and how do you create a speak-up culture? He says, if you think about it, speak-up culture puts the onus for incident and issue reporting exclusively on the employees. The converse of that is the listen-up culture, which brings in the responsibilities of management and senior staff to run an effective listen-up culture that can be simplified into a three-step process. Step one, the tone from the top and the middle must create a comfortable environment that encourages staff to report incidents and concerns. Step two, employees are expected to report uh, concerns appropriately. And number three, management, guided by a well-run compliance program, takes action to follow up the employees' more reporters to resolve issues in a timely manner. This process establishes trust that Conlin is glad to see becoming more than just another buzzword. Asking employees to speak up is assigning a task. However, if things do not change or if employees are not informed about the reason why things are not changing, the employer and its process dissipates. So how do you prove you're listening? When incidents are reported, and particularly when they're substantiated, case closure time becomes a metric that should be on anybody's mind. Consider this from an employee's reporter's perspective. What thoughts would go through your head if you built up the courage to report an incident to your employer and all you got was radio science? That's a lot of time to reevaluate your trust and management. This puts a keen focus on HR-related issues. And basically, case, uh, cases provide managers a heightened arena to develop organizational trust and prompt actions. These cases include reportation, appropriate behavior and compensation disparities. Take a moment to think about your incident intake process. Is there a light at the end of the tunnel for your employees? Can they tell that you're listening and responding? 
If not, it's time to show your employees that you're as invested in a listen-up culture as you are in creating a speak-up culture. So thought for a lot of goal, and we link to it in the show notes. Jay, there is a story that Jonathan Roush has been following. We have not followed it uh, on this week in FCPA, but you know we maybe start want to look at it because this is as huge a story, I think, as you can have in the corruption world. But here the corruption is around money laundering, and it involves banks down under in Australia, specifically the Westpac Banking Corporation. Uh, so let me just throw this number at you. Over, I think, 10 years, there are 23 million violations of the Australian Anti-Money Laundering and Counterterrorism Financing Act. 23 million alleged violations by one bank. Um, and this um, was brought to the fore by uh, very great investigative reporting in uh, Australia. And John's um, Jonathan's article reports that the uh, <clears throat> CEO and chairman announced their resignations uh, from the board. And this is clearly in reaction to the, um, or uh, the adverse reaction is to the bank for failing to carry out appropriate customer due diligence on transactions in the Philippines and Southeast Asia, where there were, uh, known financial indicators relating to child exploitation risks, uh, failing to detect scenarios um, in this area, money laundering, and just a series of problems. So perhaps we need to put this one a little bit on our radar. Uh, the size and scope of this, when I kind of dug into it and read some of the background articles in preparation for this podcast, is truly unbelievable. And when you have, uh, it's certainly one thing, the um, the bank in Estonia, Donske Bank uh, with $2 billion in uh, money laundering uh, transactions. This is 23 million violations. So um, pretty uh, large number of uh, violations and uh, really causing a lot of ripples down under. So uh, next up, we have a story that comes to us from the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance and Financial Regulation. It's entitled ESG Reporting and Best Practices. Uh, the authors are Tom Quadman, who's an executive vice president, and Eric Rust, who's the director of the Center for Capital Markets Competitiveness, both at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Policymakers have been debating here in the U.S. as well as globally on how companies should disclose environmental, social, and governments, ESG, information, both to investors as well as other stakeholders. Uh, they go, authors go on to talk about the best practices and here are some um, headlines of the titles, and you can go into the show notes and take a look a little bit deeper. But they believe that when possible, ESG disclosures should focus on a company's risks and opportunities and sufficient potential to the impact the company's long-term operational and financial performance may have on its business. Before preparing its ESG disclosures, a company should consider which audiences or audiences are intended recipients of the reports, and should they tailor the tone of its reports accordingly. Preparers of ESG reports should consider how best to liaise with relevant departments and functions within the company to ensure that relevant information is collected. In ESG reports, companies should clearly define in plain English technical terms and terms do not, not have a universal acceptance. 
It is important to allow companies' discretion on how they report this information. Issuers preparing ESG records should explain why the selected why they selected the metrics they did and topics they ultimately compose. ESG information should be easy for users to find. And finally, a company should consider including in its voluntary ESG reports a description of the company's internal review and audit process or any external verification of the information that may the company may have received. So it's a great article, and as we said, we link to it in the show notes. Jay, next up we have an article from Compliance Week by Lori Tripoli, and she takes a look at 10 things you need to know for the new California Consumer Privacy Act, which goes into effect on January 1 of 2020. Um, I'd really urge everyone to read it. Uh, first of all, obviously for its uh, thoughts around compliance with the CCPA, but really, Jay, it, it I think uh, speaks to a broader issue for compliance and how to think through uh, new regulations, new um, requirements, uh, new things that you have to comply with, or new risks that you're trying to manage. And I'll just run through this list because I think it's instructive. First of all, determine whether you're not you're subject to the law. Two, don't hand it off to the IT team. Have the compliance team lead the effort. Three, schedule uh, the implementation of your compliance program. Four, Decide whether to extend CCPA protection to your entire customer base. Five, revise your online privacy notice. And I would suggest to you, Mr. Monitors, you need to revise your California-based privacy uh, notice. Six, document reasonable security practices because if a regulator comes knocking, you want to have evidence. Document, document, document. Establish a subject data request process. Figure out where your data is. Review your vendor contracts. And then 10 train employees. So I thought a, a pretty good list of things uh, for really any compliance practitioner. But this CCPA, January 1, baby, uh, 2020, it is here. And uh, you need if you haven't looked at this yet, you really need to do so. And perhaps even Mrs. Monitors would want to uh, assist in the effort. All right. So uh, we're at the part of the podcast when we talk about one of your weekly podcasts that you put together. And uh you had the pleasure, I hope, of interviewing my L.A.-based colleague, Mikhail Reeder-Gordon. Can you share with some of our listeners the topic matters that you discuss as well? Sure, Jay. Uh, once again, we had a great sponsored podcast series uh, sponsored by Affiliated Monitors. Uh, Mikhail is really one of the top thinkers in a wide variety of areas. Uh, she's worked as a lawyer. She's worked in uh, um, financial services. Um, she's worked in government uh, and really uh, just a, some great resource around not only ethics and compliance, but compliance programs, different types of corruption, money laundering, anti-bribery, et cetera. On Monday, we took a look at the question of why independence is so critical in a monitor. Uh, and Tuesday, Mikhail is very involved with the ABA around standards for monitorship. So we talked about that. Perhaps most interesting, Jay, was on Wednesday, she teaches annually at the uh, She's a guest lecturer at the International Anti-Corruption Academy, and she talked about how that experience had actually informed part of her work as a compliance practitioner. Um, today, uh, we visited about cultural differences in uh, domestic and international monitorships, and then tomorrow, or I guess Friday when this podcast posts, uh, she's going to have a few thoughts on the evolution of monitorship. So it was a great series. Um, I hope you will uh, check out the full series uh, download them and listen to them. Batch, listen and batch, uh, batch, batch out. So, um, 
Jay, um, I really wanted to kind of get your thoughts around uh, D.C. Fontana. And if I could maybe set the stage a little bit for her. Uh, D.C. Fontana uh, came to Hollywood in the 50s, um, as with many women who began uh, non-actor or non-actress professional careers in Hollywood at that time. Uh, She came in uh, literally as a file clerk, became a secretary, uh, wrote a couple of scripts uh, for a TV series called The Lieutenant, which was Gene Roddenberry's first television series uh, before Star Trek. Uh, He hired her... um, when he got going uh, to do pilots for uh, Star Trek and she was hired. He didn't have the money nor the need to hire her as a secretary or administrative assistant, as we might call them now, perhaps a PA, um, but she was a file clerk. And then Roddenberry's head administrative assistant, his secretary got sick. And so he promoted uh, DC uh, or Dorothy Catherine Fontana. Uh, He'd obviously worked with her before. She had submitted scripts and had scripts accepted uh, in his prior series. And he started asking her to, um, I think the word was polish, uh, some scripts that came Mm -hmm. in. And she did so. And then he said, well, why don't you take a stab at writing some uh, scripts for Star Trek? So she became a script writer. And uh, to her, uh, for the... uh, Star Trek family out there, her greatest contribution was she was the one who gave us the backstory of Spock's family. So if you remember the uh, original series episode, Journey to Babel, uh, we meet Spock's father and mother. His mother, of course, uh, 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 Earther, Karen, uh, from Earth and uh, Vulcan father. And at that point, uh, Spock and his father had been estranged for a very long time. So uh, the character Sarek um, followed through uh, the animated series. He followed in Star Trek TNG, and he even followed in, um, uh, shown in the original prequel Enterprise. I believe we saw him one time in Deep Space Nine. So uh, it really was a character who had a lot of resonance. But one of the things that really struck me, and I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on Jay, is the the life of a Hollywood scriptwriter you you rarely show up as the king of the hill unless you're Orson Welles and uh, throw a script down and get a big uh, uh, payment for it you have to work your way up and you don't sit you don't work your way up simply as being a screenwriter you may have a completely different job and uh, you know your night job is to write scripts and so I was wondering if you might reflect on that and how you can kind of uh, grow professionally as a script writer in Hollywood. And is there anything you see in DC Fontana's story uh, that resonated with you? And if I could add just one other thing, I keep referring to her as DC Fontana. She had to use her initials DC Fontana because in the early sixties, uh, women weren't seen as capable of writing uh, science fiction scripts. So rather than put her name, Dorothy Ca- Catherine Fontana on the script, she used DC and even for the longest time, I didn't recognize, realize that was a woman, and that was the whole point in it. And also, uh, she said in an interview that if she either wrote or polished a script that she didn't really feel like reflected her talents, uh, she had a different name that she would use so that no one would know uh, it was uh, her, yet she was still able to get payment for it. So I was wondering if you just might give us some some of your thoughts, and if you have any thoughts on D.C. Fontana and what she contributed to the uh, the Star Trek genre as well. 
Yeah, great questions, Tom. Um, I, I used to tell people when I was writing that the only job that you get rejected at more than being a writer is being an actor. So imagine that there are a limited number of studios and production companies and, and you're sending out your scripts and sometimes they'll accept them. Sometimes you don't hear back. So you're kind of toiling away. And one of the things I loved about DC Fontana's story is she just kind of created it and made it up along the way. So when you look at the birth of television and, you know, with Star Trek coming from Desilu and the becoming part of Paramount, she just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And she said, well, why can't I write a script just as well as anyone else? So I love hearing stories about trailblazers who do not have any boundaries and just take it upon themselves. And it's um, it's kind of a sad commentary that she actually had to use her initials because she had to mask the fact that she was a woman. And it's uh, probably very interesting that you can't really tell if you don't look at a title page you can't tell the sex or the gender of who has written that story. It's really the story that matters. So, you know, I, I applaud the fact that she got to where she got to. And uh, it's very interesting where you talk about the, the other uh, pseudonym that she had to use. But, you know, being here in Hollywood, uh, you are correct that there, you know, the, the joke is you've seen it in a lot of movies that, a producer's out to dinner and the waiter slips him a script or the actor slips their headshot. So there are so many people in this town doing what they don't want to do. But the thing that light at the end of the tunnel is that they hope to get that role one day or to sell that big screenplay. And as you said earlier, Tom, nobody sells their first screenplay in this town. Uh, the press agent may have put a spin on it that it is their first screenplay. But before you get to something that's saleable, somebody's probably written 15 to 20 scripts. So it still amazes me that people have the artistic passion to come out here. And I guess one of the things that's interesting now about the world we live in is that it's a lot more. Um, there's a lot more opportunity that you don't actually have to be in Hollywood. There is a virtual community and you've seen people like, you know, not that there's a. Uh, I, I don't want to speak to the level of quality, but somebody like Tyler Perry, who's built a, you know, a, a little fiefdom in the Atlanta area, that that is where his studios are. And that is what he does. And you've seen the rise of other creatives there. So I, I think, you know, the, the tribute to uh, to D.C. Fontana is um, well deserved. And I think it's great that we uh, turn our time to think about her. The uh, I think as most listeners know, I'm a very passionate Trekkie, and not only was she involved in the original series, uh, she r ran the animated series on behalf of uh, Gene Roddenberry, and then she actually uh, co-wrote the original script, or the first script, rather, for uh, the Next Generation um, Farpoint Station, in a encounter at Farpoint Station uh, with Gene Roddenberry. She was gen li literally Gene's right-hand man. Uh, for, I guess, 20-plus years and, and with him uh, uh, throughout uh, that time period. And, and I just can't really uh, praise her enough. I can't thank her enough. The, her work as a trailblazer, a woman in science fiction, I really like the way uh, you phrased it. Uh, it wasn't that uh, she said, why not me? It's that she did it. Um, and she really was a trailblazer, and she was very well-rewarded 
with honors from the Screenwriters Guild and <clears throat> well thought of uh, in Hollywood and and one of the few left from the original series that uh, I just heard an interview with her a couple of weeks ago. So uh, she will be greatly missed. So, Jay, let's end with, um, as I mentioned at the start, the Texans beat the uh, Patriots for the first time this century. Uh, I had actually um, picked the Texans, not because I think they're the better team, but because of the following. Uh, Sunday night, uh, the Patriots are playing the Kansas City Chiefs. And I thought the Patriots would be looking ahead to that game. Um, Mm -hmm. And they were, uh, or at least looked like they were. So uh, are you feeling uh, much better, much worse? Do you think it was just a a mere blip, an aberration? Certainly the Texans exposed uh, weaknesses of the Patriots, but the Patriots have the greatest coach of all time, and I would expect that he will come up with something to uh, mask, hide, or uh, get around the weaknesses that the Texans were able to expose. How how you feeling? I'm feeling on the fence, Tom. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm sure there are many other teams that would be 10 and two and wouldn't have the state of the media and their chowed ahead fan base uh, fretting the way these Patriots do. Uh, for the longest time, Coach Belichick gets the uh, uh, accolades heaped on him from trying to figure out uh, using urines and themins and beating themins and whatever that bum Philip thing was. But I don't really see the creativity happening there. Um, I don't know if some of the blame goes to Josh McDaniels. Uh, that defense was super through the first half of the season. Uh, people seem to be figuring it out. And unless the defense makes plays, and last week they didn't make any plays, they didn't get any turnovers – so that did not give the Patriots' offense a short field to score. Um, I think it's time for Tom to stop being frustrated, realize who he's got, and to your point, use the strength on what's going to happen. So I don't want to make excuses. I don't want to talk about injuries. It's next man up, and now it's probably time for New England to nut it up and get a win. So any predictions this weekend? Yes, Um Kansas City 28, New England 26. Wow. Uh, See, I think uh, that New England was setting up Kansas City for the big fall. So uh, I'm taking the Patriots and the points, Jay. (laughs) All righty. So for Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist and the voice of compliance, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 182 for the week ending December 4th, 2019, the farewell to DC Fontana edition. Have a great weekend and we'll talk to you next week. Hello everyone. This is Tom Fox. Again, I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of this week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can reach Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. If you, uh, I hope you will join Jay and I again next week where we take up some of the stories that caught our collective eyes over the week on compliance and ethics. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.